The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu backslash Trident Room Podcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. In today's podcast, NPS student Joe Novak sits down and has a drink with NPS alumni Matthew Taranto. So you've been at uh, NPS already twice now. When's the third time? <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> I'm an Air Force guy, man. To, to be here twice. Uh, that's lucky. Is, 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 is lucky as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. To come here once is a treat. So. Uh, Amen. And what did you, uh, the first time, what did you focus on? What did you study? Human systems integration. So I was a student in the OR department. Picked up by Air Force Institute of Technology to, to come get the degree and uh, didn't even know where MPS was. <laughs> so I uh, looked it up, looked like a neat place and I uh, really enjoyed our first tour here. Mm-hmm. So what are we drinking today? Uh, I'm drinking a fat tire. Nice. Um, sounded good today. Absolutely. You're not an academy guy, are you? No. Okay. ROTC. Why do you say it like that? Yeah, <laughs> I, I passed up an opportunity to go to the Air Force Academy and mm-hmm. and chose ROTC and and uh, enjoyed my time doing that uh, and had no regrets about it. And somehow you ended up at NPS not once, but twice. Yeah. And when's it going to be the third time? Well, if, if they'd like to have me back to teach, I would. I'd be interested in doing that. But absolutely, uh, there's there's no there's no other opportunities to come back. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's um, another Air Force guy, uh, Colonel Sands, who was here three times, and he did one AFIT tour, which is pretty impressive. Um, so you've been here twice. Did you approach the second time any differently than the first? Yeah, I, I came in the second time with kind of. A little, I wouldn't say home field advantage, but a little bit of mm, a better understanding. I knew where the snack bar was. I knew where the Trident Room was. You know, <laughs> I had some continuity with uh, faculty uh, that I'd worked with in the past. So that, and that was actually one of the things that drew me back to MPS, uh, knowing that pursuing the PhD is a tall order in 36 months. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I knew that that would be a challenge regardless of where I went, but I, I sensed that NPS had a decent understanding and respect for that short timeline mm-hmm. that the Air Force gives us. So came at it with a, you know, a little bit of homecoming. We had uh, a really good experience here the first time we were here. So coming back was uh, an easy sell for the PhD to, for my wife mm-hmm. uh, and the family. Uh, it's, we really enjoyed the, the area uh, and the school the first time around. So. Um, the Air Force asked me where I wanted to go. It was a no-brainer. It was the only place I applied. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yep. Did you, you know, you said it's uh, three years for the PhD here. I mean, you know, you talk to your buddies out uh, in the civilian world, and they're doing PhDs four, five, six, seven years. Is it fair for it to be three years? I, I don't know if fair is the right word. Uh, it's... It's definitely a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot of ground to cover in three years. 
and you know it uh i'm not sure what the reason the exact reasons are for them to take longer in other other schools i have my you know my personal ideas but uh it uh regardless it's 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 a tough climb mm-hmm. uh, and to do it in three years you it's it's even that much more of a challenge uh, so so how did you do I, it in three years i mean what i mean by that is it takes an immense amount of focus and you can't be screwing around. You don't have time to waste. How were you able to focus yourself and when you sat down, get what you need to be, uh, to be accomplished, to be read, to be written, to be whatever. So I had a, uh, a mentor that spent some time with me early, uh, and, and encouraged me to really spend some time breaking down the requirements mm-hmm. of the degree and to map those to, smaller work packages, uh, if you will, uh, and then map that to a timeline and to do my best to keep myself honest with that timeline. And so that that's something that was really helpful uh, as far as the schedule was concerned uh, and then doing everything I could within reason to, to stay on schedule. And so um, that was probably the biggest thing I did was create that breakdown of everything I had to do and decompose it into smaller pieces and then organize it in a logical linear flow uh, and then map it to my timeline uh, and then just be disciplined about staying to it and building in some slack time. That was probably one of the the other keys too was was adding slack, uh, especially towards the end when, you know, you you research, things happen. Uh, COVID happens, <laughs> and, and so those happening. those things. Uh, finishing a dissertation with two toddlers in the house during COVID was um, interesting, mm-hmm. uh, and it brought a, a challenge. And so I was very grateful to have the slack time built in the schedule at that point. But were there any classes your first time around at NPS that helped you kind of program manage uh, your PhD? I don't know that it was really coursework that I did here, but maybe. Uh, so, so some of the program management and systems engineering uh, courses that I took last time I was here were uh, very helpful in organizing the requirements, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, and breaking it down, like I mentioned, and and then laying out uh, a plan in a kind of a program management uh, fashion. Um, but that really is, you know, I. I think a lot of students probably come at it and just, it, it's a, um, they kind of wander through it. Uh, I, I knew that for me and in, in my, my approach and in my style, I, I probably wouldn't do well with that. So mm-hmm. I needed structure and a plan and a recipe to follow, uh, if I was going to make it on time. And it was really important to me to finish on time. And so that, that was something that put a lot of pressure on myself to, to build the flight plan, if you will, as a pilot, you know, uh, what's my destination? Where are we going? Uh, a lot of PhDs don't know what the destination is. When I say PhD, uh, students, right? Uh, and the most dreaded question you get as a PhD student is what's your dissertation topic? <laughs> okay, that's that's a pretty normal thing people flinch about. And, and you don't really know for a while until you really pin that down. You don't have a firm destination. And so things can get a little goofy uh, out the gate. You know, and I think some students wander a little bit, and it's okay to wander some, I think. Uh, you should do some of that, uh, but it needs to be limited so that you can stay 
stay focused and, and move on to the next leg of the flight. Right? Mm-hmm. You only have so much fuel to get there. Uh, the sooner you can nail down that destination and the easier it is to plan and the easier it is to understand what's in your way and what's in your critical path and what you must do and how you're going to get there and so how do you cook dinner if you don't know what you're going to cook you know how do you jump in an aircraft and fly if you don't know where you're going we typically don't get in our cars and just you know randomly drive around you know so a random walk is is okay in small doses early in the phd process but you know, some people uh, was termed frolicking in the lilies <laughs> when I first got here. And I think that's a good thing for students to do. And it is a uniqueness of the PhD that you don't have as an undergrad or a graduate student. Uh, as a grad student, uh, my experience here was a very densely packed matrix for 24 months that you chew through and knock out a thesis and you're out the door. Uh, this was a different approach in that you really don't have that same matrix to chew through you have all these other requirements and oh by the way you get to kind of choose within reason what what it is that you're going to study and so that latitude can be problematic for some students uh, i've embraced it and really enjoyed it but uh really uh to back to your question is really about is with the plan you know time small pieces and, and then just trying to keep honest with that all the way through the process. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've taken a couple SE classes, and what you're saying sounds definitely elements of, of, of uh, some classwork I've done in, in uh, the basic, the fundamental SE classes. Um, and it sounds like you took it to the next level uh, for your planning and your uh, your work. Yeah, it, uh, so, so a piece of systems thinking, start with the end in mind, right? Destination, like I just said. We start that and we walk backwards. And that, that from graduation to uh, when I arrived here in Monterey, it was really helped me scope the work that I needed to do. Uh, and, and it kind of bounded the problem in a way that allowed me to build a plan that was achievable. One thing I want to ask you is you said you just got to stay honest. You got to keep, keep working. You got to meet your own deadlines that you've set your, for yourself. I need you to break that down for me, <laughs> keeping yourself honest. You have something that on your plan is due Wednesday, right? But you don't really have anything Thursday or Friday. It's now 9 o'clock at night, Wednesday night. This thing is going to take you, let's say, four hours. What do you do? It depends. And there's your classic PhD answer, right? <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it depends, right? So it depends on what it is. Uh, I tried to be very situational during my time here. So... Was it something that I arbitrarily mapped uh, to a timeline early? Is it something that could could, could flex to the right? Uh, is it something that I could do early? There was a lot of stuff I tried to do early so I could create slack later on. And I think those are, you know, you, you, just, you just have to be a little bit flexible, but a little bit forceful with yourself to, to not let it get ahead of you. You know, so in the aircraft, we talk about not, you know, being behind the aircraft, right? And stay in front of the jet, right? And so that's, I tried to bring that mentality to my work here where I, I wouldn't let it get away from me. Mm-hmm. And so if that meant staying up very late, uh, if that meant working weekends, if that meant not doing something fun that I wanted to do otherwise, then that's what it meant. And I knew that down the road, there would be days or weekends or time when I could you know, partake in other festivities or go, go enjoy a little bit with the family or, or whatever. And, and so there's a little bit of a balance there. You know, you can't be, uh, 
too hard on yourself. Uh, but that's the beauty of the slack in the schedule. So if you can bake that in early and stay ahead, some things are going to be later on. Some things will get done early. Uh, but in general, staying on, on time is really important. Did you make any big mistakes that you regret? Like things you should have done differently as far as your planning or uh, some of your requir requirements? No, I really don't think I have any regrets. Uh, there are a lot of things that are totally out of your control. Mm -hmm. uh, the PhD is a unique animal. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to say there's no line on the urinalysis cup. But really, <laughs> you don't know. There's a uniqueness about the degree is, is that you don't know what is good enough. And so one of the challenges is, is there's no there's no firm line in the sand. You know, it is in a lot of ways subjective to your you know, your committee members and your chair and uh, your professors. Is, you know, it's a little bit challenging in that sense. And so there's some things you just don't have control over. You know, their response times, for example, may be a little bit delayed. Maybe a lot delayed. Uh, there may be some herding of cats that the student has to do. Uh, for example, I had a six-member committee. And that, you know, by and large, they were awesome. Uh, but there are inherent challenges uh, in, in managing that uh, as a student. And so you, you can't control you know, what people are going to ask of you. You can't control their reaction to what you write or what you do or what you think. Uh, or some of your perspectives. Uh, and so that creates, you know, some challenges, but that's part of the process. And I think it, it in the end leads to uh, a good outcome for the student. Did you get the support you needed from NPS here for your PhD? NPS was awesome. It really was good. I don't think NPS is, uh, I don't know that they're really geared totally for the PhD. Uh, mm -hmm. I think they do a nice job with it. I had a good experience with it by and large. Um, I, you know, there's, I didn't have a lot of classmates, <laughs> you know, there's, there's not many of us, you know, I would suggest there's at any given time, less than a dozen, uh, on campus, uh, going through the process. So, you know, the focus of the professors and, and the university is on master's degrees, uh, but they, do a nice job with it, even though they don't do very many of them. So support-wise, yes. Uh, they welcome me with open arms. The uh, professors I, I recognize don't have teaching assistants, and they, they don't have a lot of staff, and so they have a lot of challenges on their plate, too, uh, while they're teaching and doing their research. Uh, so it's tough. And when you add in the timeline, there's it's, – it's, it's, like I said, a lot of ground to cover, and you got – busy faculty and a short timeline and a, and a student that really doesn't know what he's doing or where he's going at first. And, and that just, uh, that can create some hazards along the way. As far as regrets though, no. And as far as support, really, I, well, there's a lot of reason I came back to NPS was I felt like I got good support the first time I was here. And I knew I would need that going through this process, especially with a young family, uh, and, and knocking this out in a short timeline. So yeah, by and large, I think, I would I would rate the support from the university is, is very high. Great, good to yeah. hear. Did you interact much with other PhDs? A few, not a lot, honestly. There was uh, there's two other PhD students in my department. Uh, we hung fairly tight 
through the majority of the process. But the challenge is, is you're in your own, your research is unique to you. Your coursework is unique to what you're researching. Your committee makeup is different. You're probably in different courses. And so even PhD students in the same department are going very different paths. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, as far as interaction across the school, uh, I probably would have appreciated or enjoyed to spend more time with uh, fellow PhD students on campus. Uh, and that's partially my fault. I didn't make a huge effort to reach out to those people and, and try to make that happen. But that's really not my mo if you will you know i'm i just focused on my work and knew what i had to get done and and uh didn't i didn't put a big big push into spending time with a lot of other phd students at nps we have what on the order of 15 or so phds yeah like i said time? i would say at any given time it's a probably 12 or less mm -hmm. it would be my guess uh, again i could be wrong i don't know what it's not very many so tell us a little bit about your work how you came to it what it is and uh, where it's going. So one of the neat things about NPS is you can bring some of your operational background to bear. Absolutely. And the PhD allows for some latitude in what it is that you want to study. So I think a lot of us come at this with uh, some frustration or some excitement about some potential or possibilities to make uh, maybe a difference or some change. In the way you saw or experienced things in the operational setting, and so coming in to the degree, I thought the first time I came here it was neat because most of your classmates are coming in with an average of 10 years of operational background. Mm -hmm. And speaking of, maybe before we get into that even, can you tell us a little bit about your operational background? Sure. So it, I'm a little bit of an exotic species. I have kind of a mixed background, uh, a pretty colorful uh, operational background uh, in the Air Force, but started out doing uh, aircraft mishap investigations uh, while I was in the holding pattern to go to pilot training, uh, flew T-37s. You were doing mishap investigations before even going to pilot training? Yeah. How, how did that yeah. happen? Yeah, the Air Force sent me to the Air Force Safety Center. As a as a, as a second butter lieutenant, bar. As a second lieutenant what? to support, yeah, to support um, aviation aircraft mishaps. You were on the board. Yes. You were a voting member of the. No, well, we are on the board uh, and serving in whatever capacity the the board president deems necessary. Coffee. Could be. <laughs> I don't ever recall doing coffee. Uh, snacko. Sorry. Yeah, I don't remember doing being snacko, but it. Uh, was a lot of the admin and coordination and uh, I, I guess uh, kind of an exec to the board. Okay, yeah, that's uh, fair. And, and so um, getting people out, getting there, a lot of arrangements and then facilitating the investigation in any way that we could. Uh, we did go through the full suite of, I did go through the full suite of mishap investigation training. That's great. Uh, at the safety center. Uh, and so I had all the same training that any anybody on the board would have unless they were a specialist like a doc or something right so uh yeah so supported a ton of mishap investigations uh wow. in my what, year what years was that that was in 2003 oh wow there was a lot of blue on blue in the air force then like a lot of mid-airs a lot of uh, uh a lot of problems yeah yeah so high mishap rates uh that was kind of my first exposure uh, to the air force but it's good uh, off to pilot training columbus in mississippi I uh, flew there for the better part of a year. Uh, from there, they sent me out to Vandenberg Air Force Base. I got some oh. s some space training. 
And so I spent, uh, I, spent <laughs> I some thought time. I knew you. <laughs> yeah. It's like the yeah. first time we're talking. You keep, keep all the cards uh, face up. But yes, so they, they said, oh, we, want, we want you to get smart in some of the space stuff. I said, okay. Uh, pitched out there. Uh, got through a space training at Vandenberg Air Force Base in 2005. Uh, and earlier I had put my name in the hat to, become, uh, to be an aerospace physiologist. I have a pre-med bachelor's degree. Uh, and so that's was something I was interested in from the very beginning, but they weren't taking any accessions. So uh, while I was literally finishing my space training at Vandenberg, they offered me one of two slots to become a Air Force aerospace physiologist, and I gladly accepted that. And so from there, we went to Holloman Air Force Base uh, after I did my all my physiology training at uh, Brooks City Base in San Antonio. Uh, I ran the Air Force Centrifuge and Altitude Chamber Unit at Holloman for three years. Flew T-38s out there with the F-117s. Nice. Got to sign one of the last Bombay doors that flew off the base. Is that right? In 2007 wow. or eight, when they retired. And uh, Did so you yeah. know Shaq, by the way? Shaq? Sauce? Doesn't, doesn't ring a bell. I went to pilot training with her. Just yeah. curious. Okay. Doesn't ring a bell. Uh, <clears throat> from there, I went to... Uh, Las Vegas, where I was assigned to the Air Force Weapons School. I was a Thunderbirds physiologist for three years. Wow. And uh, the Weapons School physiologist, so I flew mostly uh, F-16s and 15 Eagles uh, at Nellis. Uh, did another 20 mishap investigations <laughs> in my three years at Nellis uh, all over the globe. Now, uh, most of the, I mean, a mishap investigation tends to take at least two to four weeks, right? 30 days, start to finish. Wow. So I did a bunch of those uh, all the way from minor incidents in the air, uh, near misses, to uh, fatal accidents, uh, recovering um, <clears throat> aircraft out of the ground. So, and, uh, and very um, high visibility, F-22. Yeah, I, did the, I investigated the second hypoxia uh, event on record uh, in 2008. I believe it was or 2009 I can't remember what year it was so I got an early plug into F-22 I spent six months in 2011 on the the Air Force's uh, big look at the the first big look at uh, OBOG's issues Mm -hmm. we've got uh, in the fleet so traveled the globe for six months uh, chasing OBOG's issues Uh, I had to leave right before we briefed the chief to come out here to get my master's degree so three years at Nellis, uh, then pitched out here for two years for the master's degree. Left Monterey for the Air Force Research Lab for a three-year tour as the technical director at the Human Systems Integration Directorate. And was also a division chief out there for a year and some change and did some HSI work uh, for flight medicine. Um, and made some architectural changes there. And was fortunate enough to get picked up for an in-residence Air Command Staff College billet. So I went to Air University down at Maxwell for a year. While I was there, I found out I got picked up for the PhD. I came out here for three. And now we're literally packing and getting ready to leave for Edwards Air Force Base, where I'll work and teach at the test pilot school. Fantastic. And, wow, and, and you go into Edwards, just a storied base um, with an incredible history and and present and future um 
okay, so you get to NTPS three years ago. Mm -hmm. How do you pull together everything you've done so far, your your uh, flying experience, your aerospace medicine experience, sure. or physiology experience, et cetera? What do you do with that uh, that knowledge, and what do you do with your time here? <clears throat> I came into it... Uh, I'm an HSI, Human Systems Integration Practitioner uh, by trade and, and impartially by uh, academics. I have a human factors background. I, I have a master's in aeronautical science and human factors from Embry-Riddle as well. And uh, came at, at my time here uh, really with the interest in HSI. It's a young profession uh, that's you know, struggling to get and find its feet. Uh, it's a challenging space to work in, uh, and so I spent three years in the HSI trenches uh, at AFRL. And by the way, can you just quickly delineate human factors from HSI? Tell us the difference. Yeah, so it, HSI really targets and attempts to try to really incorporate a multi-domain approach to design, uh, and so... How can we look at different domains in a system, whether it be you know, manpower, personnel, training, human factors, uh, occupational health, safety, survivability, the environment, habitability, and all these different domains, and, and how, how can we strike an appropriate balance between those things uh, to, to truly optimize performance for the warfighter and for the nation? And in design, how do we make the trades between these types of domains in a way that we can understand them uh, and understand what we're trading off and what we're trading for? Uh, and that's a challenging th space to work within. And, and, and the practice really hasn't really cracked that code yet. Uh, with the academics leaving here the first time and then going and getting the operational experience for the three years, I, I, I left with, with some of an appetite of really trying to hunt down and spend some time thinking about how we might improve the way we practice HSI, uh, especially in the Air Force. So but really, that's what HSI is about. Uh, human factors, you heard me mention, is one of those domains. Uh, and really, you know, human factors is you know, some of those uh, unique things about the human and the way that we are, our, our anatomy is, or the way that we think, uh, uh, or could be our reaction speed, or Know, what some of our limitations may be, uh, specifically as a human, uh, that, that may and should influence the way we design things. All right. Okay, so you come here, yep. you work on your PhD. What, what do you have to show for it? We have a show for it. <laughs> yeah, tell us tell us about your PhD. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's much to show yet. You know, so I, we all come in, I think, trying to want to make a difference, right? I think most PhD students, especially here at NPS, you come here with an operational mindset. Uh, really, these degrees here are designed to have a purpose, you know, and I like that about NPS. And one of the challenges that you, you kind of bump up against is you may want to try to make a huge difference in your community or in the world or whatever it may be that you're after. Uh, but the reality is, is that you're here, this is training. The PhD process is to train you and, and to, to earn the license to go do research. And so I think I think what you should strive to show for uh, when you finish something like this is to not so much have changed the world, but to have engaged in a process and walk away from it 
recognizing a different approach to solving problems and being equipped to go out into the world per se and help solve problems that haven't been solved yet. And so I think the real pay dirt lays ahead. So to say that there's anything to show, I don't know that there really is. I think it's it's what's down the road. Thankfully, I was surrounded by a great team here uh, with a lot of good support. And I think we actually did do some good work. And I think the work we did here, uh, depending on how, how willing HSI is, uh, willing to embrace the work we did uh, and metabolize it and use it, you know, that depends on the community. And if they, they want to embrace it and take it on, I think there's great pay dirt uh, in what we did. And, and so what did you do? What did we do? So what I did was I, I, I really said, how do we, you know, one of the challenges I think HSI is faced with is this, is it's, uh, its challenge is to really quantify and make explicit the decisions and the trades that happen in relation to design considerations. Uh, whether it's system design or in how we maybe select people or where we put them or how we design training. Uh, you know, so there's there's an alignment issue with people and technology and there's a design issue with technology. And one of the beauties in the, you know, the other sciences or other more mature fields like engineering or uh, maybe even physics or where these places where, you know, things behave in very predictable ways. And so the human does not, you know, and we all, you know, we all are a little bit different, but we're all a little bit the same. And so there's this complexity with the human that brings this challenge and this need for the practice of HSI. But the practice in my experience was that pragmatically, and, you know, when the, where the rubber meets the road, it's a very challenging thing to do. Uh, and so what I went after is, is how, how can we take some of the success and the accomplishments of the operations research community and their analytic capacity, and how do we weave that with a systems engineering process with whom we support as an HSI practice, and do that in a way in an environment that's compressed by time. And so that's where the modeling piece comes in. And so my work is titled model-based human systems integration. So how do I model? And in the business of HSI, I'm really trying to forecast performance. And I don't have time to go run a bunch of studies during design. And so how can we efficiently predict? Uh, we have to model the system. So how do we model the human? And unfortunately, you know, to date, HSI really is practiced a theoretically. There's really no underpinning theory that's been accepted across the practice. And so I went hunting for that. And that was my time of frolicking in the lilies for my PhD was... <laughs> I could see it now. How do we do this? And hundreds of people have spent years and years and years trying to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And so it really came down to me taking a look. And so so one of my advisors encouraged me to go, go shopping around and other professions and see how they're grappling and dealing with complexity. So that's what I did. Uh, I took a lot of great classes here and... In software engineering, software acquisitions, computer programming, uh, business, uh, operations research, stochastics, advanced data analysis. You know, how are different areas really trying to wrap their arms around complexity? And it really, 
what what would be a way that we could really try to bound the human in a way that we could measure and, and predict with some level of reliability and, and so that's what I hunted for uh, and it, it took me you know quite some time to figure out something that I thought was worth exploring and and we eventually did that and, and moved forward with it and I, I think it came out nice but I am biased I did the work so you should read it and you should look at it and decide for yourself if you think it's worthwhile what will it take to <clears throat> what will it take to get your work traction in the active duty in in the uh, the HSI communities of the DOD that's a great question uh, if you read my dissertation you'll see the very first quote that I throw out on on page one is you know there's this is not likely to be accepted. This is very different. Uh, in, in any community that really tries to put that rudder in the water, there's a lot of creaking and banging in the ship. Yeah, and so, you know, I think the, the there is an appetite for for the SC community. I think there is an appetite in HSI to really find a way to provide some guardrails and 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 some some way forward. And I, I think this might do that. So. What will it take? Well, it's going to take a little bit more validation. We did one really nice study. Uh, it's uh, a very, you know, we, we, we put people through a very difficult task uh, that were, you know, represent a very heterogeneous sample uh, that were total novices. And we actually predicted their performance quite nicely. And so I, I think... And the task was? An instrument landing systems precision approach uh, uh, into the Seattle Tacoma airport uh, via simulation. Mm -hmm. And so every every participant that was in the study had zero flight experience. Uh, and so very interesting to measure uh, what we called basic performance resources and then measure their performance in a very quantitative way uh, and use general systems performance theory and a subset of that term nonlinear causal resource analysis to really understand what resources are required and present at a minimum to perform at certain levels. And so it seems to work. It really does. It really seems to work. <laughs> and so there's so many things, you know, that have to line up to do that, but it seems to actually predict quite nicely, especially in the world of social sciences and, and human behavior. So, uh, the real short answer to your question is is, is more more work in this area, and, and so more studies, uh, and then application, you know, on a real system. And, yeah. So and how can this be applied? It. Application really for the Air Force or the DODs and the acquisitions process. Mm -hmm. At any point, preferably early. I guess I mean, give me an example of what it, if this comes to fruition, if this becomes more mature, sure, gets validated. What can we see in say ten years? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of potential there. It, it, you know, on the alignment side of the house, you know, the DOD spends a lot of money on people. Very expensive. You know, how we select them. You know, we use an additive model uh, ASVAB process to bring people in you know, for the majority of the services. Uh, That's very antiquated. You know, there's a potential here to better quantify what people bring to the table uh, as we move forward before we send them to training. Then we send them to training. You know, how well is our training working? Is it doing what it's supposed to do? 
MBHSI, model-based human systems integration, but really provides a, a path to quantify you as an individual, not as a group and not as some part of a distribution or percentile, but you as an individual and what your capacities are and what they need to be to do the job and what that delta looks like so that we can potentially engage in what they would love to do, which is individualized training. You know, when I went to pilot training, I probably needed more formation flying time than, you know, my buddies. Uh, I have buddies that probably needed more night flying time or more, you know, instrument time or whatever. So we're all unique in that we have different capacities, basically the same resources. And so mapping training that fits me and fits you has huge potential. Occupational medicine. You know, when we break people acutely or chronically and they get hurt or sick, how do we know when they're safe to go back to work? You know, if we can measure these things and we know what is required of the job and we know what they bring to the table, and as long as that's sufficient, then we can confidently put them back in the proverbial airplane or whatever it is that we're doing. Design of systems. So how do we design a system? Every system we design places a tax on the human that's using it. So how do we know where it's taxing the human and, and where can we adjust those taxes so that it's more efficient in the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in, in terms of selection, you know, you know, how do you select the right person? to do the job, right? And so what this approach does is it creates a in-dimensional performance capacity envelope that's yours. We measure certain capacities. Uh, we know the demand signal of the different MOSs or AFSCs or ratings or whatever it may be. And then we can more smartly align in a, in a much more precise way the right person with the right job. So. What does it do in general? It helps us get the right people on the bus and more importantly, get the right people in the right seats on the bus. In terms of uh, design, you know, like I was saying, as far as taxing the human, where is it taxing us? Where's the demand the greatest and where can we alleviate that? And if we can make that in a very explicit way and we can make those understandings, then we may be able to make design changes that are actually smart, right? What does that mean? That means we're not being wasteful. And so, if, if I'm giving you training on something you don't need training on, then that's waste. If I bring you in to do a job and you're overqualified, that's waste. If I bring you in to do a job and you don't have the capacity to do it, that's risk, right? So how do we minimize waste and minimize our risk uh, in a way that saves money but actually improves performance? And so our OR world would tell us this is a multi-objective function. And so how... How do we minimize cost and maximize performance? Oh, by the way, that's the objective of HSI per the DOD. Okay. And so all those things kind of come together in terms of, of the work we did here. Uh, and, and there's there's even more, you know, concepts out there that may be interesting. Like how do we, you know, I mentioned I was a, I investigated mishaps, right? So it's interesting when you sit down with a, a Boeing engineer, uh, and we're looking at collapsed, you know, landing gear. They know what the structural limitations are of the aircraft, and they can tell us with great precision what kind of pressure the aircraft was put under, uh, and explain why it broke where it did. You know, 
it's because they've measured it and they know what the tolerances are. So in terms of resilience mm-hmm. for our airmen or our sailors or our soldiers, you know, what does that look like? How do we quantify those things? And then do it in a way where we can uh, accommodate for those things where, you know, somebody's cold, wet, scared, tired, or hungry. Uh, and, and be individualized about it in a way that's precise. And so there's all of those places uh, that this may touch as well. So a lot of interesting ideas that are out there. Um, who knows if any of them will matriculate. Uh, but, you know, when you're close to the work, I think I think you, you know, you see some of those things. But, you know, the community's got to want it. There's got to be an appetite for it. Uh, and so if there is, great. If not, well, I did what I could do, you know, and there's not much more you can do in, in pushing that rope, I guess. Now, when I was at a research lab a couple of years ago, I was talking to a researcher, and he talked. He told me about patenting his own work. Um, you know, a lot of people think that uh, you're working for the government. You'll, you'll, you can't do anything about it. it whatever you discover or learn or, or what have you belongs to the government. Is that necessarily true, or is there some way that if the if the government doesn't want to use a, a widget that uh, you design as a PhD at NPS that the actual researcher can um, uh, can patent that and can then use that in the future. All right, so I'm going to proceed with caution here. There is uh, a patent attorney at NPS uh, whom I've worked a little bit with. Uh, we are pursuing one patent for my work. Here at NPS, uh, my understanding at this point is that because uh, I'm employed by the federal government, uh, that that information and that technology and that ideas uh, belong to the federal government. However, uh, the incentive for people like me to come and do this type of work uh, is that in the event that the government determines that they want to patent it and maintain control of the prop intellectual property or the technology or whatever it may be, uh, then if there's ever licensing agreements or, or whatever down the road, at least in the near term, um, that there is, you know, a potential for, for the service member to, to receive a, a portion of that. And that all is, you know, if you have questions on that, I really would defer to, <laughs> to the to the legal counsel, yeah, you know, because that that is, you know, there's some, you know, I will say this, don't be, uh, I would I would tell you know students pursue it. Uh, I I think it's worth doing. Uh, I think you know, and if the government decides that they don't want it, then it's up to you uh, to go protect it if you decide you'd like to do that. But you're going to pay for it, uh, and you got to you got to fund it yourself. And some people, I'm sure, do that. Um, and so we'll just have to wait and see on this work, uh, what comes of it. Uh, if the government wants to hang on to the the piece that we're going to push up, great. Uh, and if not, then uh, you know maybe it's a contribution to society. Nice. Well, you know, walking around several of the buildings, I've noticed plaques on the walls, mm-hmm. and if you you look closely, there's lots of patents. Um, just you know, plaqued on the walls of the various buildings, uh, lots of the engineering buildings with different discoveries, different um, intellectual property, and they're patented by, right, NPS, but also the, the faculty member or the student sure. who, who discovered it. Uh, so that's, uh, that was just eye-opening to me when I, when I saw that a couple years back at the research lab. 
So, are you going to be able to use any of this at Edwards? We'll see. You know, I don't. Depends on the nature of the work. Uh, I uh, my mindset is to uh, not be running around selling used vacuums. And so, if <laughs> if if it's applicable and there's an appetite for it, and and the work uh, could benefit from it, then yeah, we'll we'll test fly it. You know, if if there's not, then you know, I'm not. You know, my job is not to force that. And, and so, th- there may be. I, I don't know, and I don't know exactly yet. Uh, you know, everything that I'll be doing there yet. So we'll just have to take it a day at a time. But it would be neat uh, to continue the research uh, in an operational sense and a test environment and and you know if, if that's something the air force wants to engage in then great well, i'm glad to support that but you know, definitely not something i can really push mm-hmm. now from where you're at now a newly minted phd student or excuse me phd phd um do you see a role for active duty phd members as opposed to just having civilians or contractors with the PhDs uh, in the DOD? Yes. Okay, why? There is a, I think, a very unique value to have a cohort of people in your service that have the operational background of being in whatever service that they're in and having spent time in the proverbial arena doing what it is that we do downrange and then blending that with an academic pedigree that facilitates problem solving and doesn't just transfer our thinking uh, to a contractor. And so the contractors bring great stuff to the table. Awesome stuff. And, but I, I think, I think there's, you know, a huge value to the service to, when I say that, the Air Force, Navy, Army, whatever, to make sure that there is some cohort of of your operationally minded and experienced people that also have that academic pedigree baked in as well, where they they can support you know uh, very pragmatic solutions to these very unique problems, and we shouldn't transfer all of our thinking and contract all of our thinking out. You know, I I don't I don't know that that's right. I, I think. You know, we really need to retain some of that in-house, uh, and I think that's valuable. There is movement afoot. I know in the Air Force I can speak of of a Ph.D. assignments team that's starting to take traction uh, where they will manage our assignments in a very unique kind of way. I think the Air Force has realized that the investment in these degrees, and I think they are realizing that it should be taken a little bit you know, it should be a special team that manages where these people are placed so that the the use uh, of that credential or degree or whatever it is is being maximized. Uh, And so, you know, it takes a look. It's a huge investment by them. They cut you out of hide for three years, send you to school, you know, and and you're gone, right? You're not not doing the job and then, you know, you come back and, you know, maybe your functional career field puts you in a good place maybe they don't you know for whatever reason and so it sounds like there's going to be a new team set up at the personnel center that manages us uh in a special kind of way to make sure that they're managing that talent in the best possible way so that's exciting to see i think we'll see how it turns out absolutely long pipeline but uh lots of fruit at the end of Mm -hmm. it i think yeah 
So you've got a, a license to research now. You are a PhD, stamp of approval. So if you could publish just one successful realistic paper, uh, what would the title be? And give us a quick rundown of the abstract. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know what the title would be. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know. I think, you know, I'll take a I'll take a script out of Colonel Boyd's book. Okay? And in Colonel Boyd, one of the things that he talked about was a juncture that that we all come to. Uh, and it, do you want to tell us who Colonel Boyd was? Sure. So he's a storied legendary uh, pilot in the Air Force. Well, but, why don't you tell us about him? Well, Colonel Boyd, um, you know, as far as the Vietnam and later era pilots, the kind of the two names every fighter pilot knows in the Air Force is um, Boyd and Olds. Olds. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Boyd and Olds. Uh, Boyd um, was one of the first to actually kind of do what you're doing with dogfighting. So, so what, what you're doing with a human, he did with the dog with dogfighting. In other words, he really quantified dogfighting as far as energy, altitude, airspeed, those types of things, and he showed models uh and and he even somehow hijacked some supercomputers back in the day in the 70s sometime to run models of air-to-air -air engagements um and so he was really kind of an intellectual fighter pilot and there's not a whole lot of those <laughs> <laughs> um so he, he was really kind of an intellectual and he he um uh is, is well known in the air force so yeah thank you for that so, yeah he's credited you know most people on the street would know him from uh the ooda loop Reserve Orient Decide Act. Uh, his work was vastly deeper than that. Uh, I encourage you to take a look. Uh, you know, those of you listening to uh, uh, read his short essay on destruction and creation. That's seven pages, but I'm told it took him a year to write. Uh, and it took me probably four hours to read. Yeah, it's a, great. It's a tough one, but it's and, awesome. And so if you read that, that really, you know, Boyd was a was a compass for me throughout this process. Uh, he really influenced my work in the way that I thought about the work. Uh, and that essay really guided a lot of my thinking. And if, if anybody, you know, maybe nobody, but reads my dissertation <laughs> other than my chair, uh, uh, you will see the parallels. Uh, and so uh, thanks to Colonel Boyd for that. But you know, he, uh, Break Break, would talk, you know, that, that all of us in the Air Force come to a point where uh, we have a, a decision to make. And, and really it was, it's called to be or to do. You know, do you, uh, are you going to be somebody or are you going to do something? Uh, and so in reference to your question about a paper, I would say that, you know, for me, it's way less about to be and it's more about to do. And... And I say that humbly. I, I think if I could write a paper or do a piece of research or do a piece of work that really gives, you know, my Air Force an advantage or protects an airman or gives, you know, delivers a system in a way that uh, does it right and um, makes a difference for the good and brings, you know, a dad and a husband back or, you know, prevents something bad from happening uh, and we may never know those things, uh, then that, whatever that paper was, <laughs> right? And this would be more of looking in the rearview mirror down the road. Whatever that paper was or whatever that idea was, that would be it. Great. Oh, great answer. 
What's the best investment in yourself you've ever made? It could be time, money, an object, best in a relationship. Yeah, the best investment in myself. That's a great question. Um, I really value education. I don't tell many people this, but this is my fifth degree. I. You just told a whole lot of people. That? Yeah, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, you know, the Air Force has been a blessing in my life uh, to continue to to send me back to school. Um, you know, I, I value the education, and that is something you know my granddad told me as a kid uh, that nobody can ever take from you, and and to go after it. And so, I think that's you know if if I could blend that with you know just the word try. I'm not the sharpest crayon in the box, you know, but I do have a lot of try in me. And, and I think I, I know I'm not going to always get it right. I know I'm going to fail. I know, you know, as long as I fail forward and I keep trying, uh, then I think that's what matters. And, and so I think fostering and and nurturing the desire to try and and trying to stay interested and engaged in education uh, are a huge investment uh, in yourself. Uh, I'm a man of faith. Uh, I don't know that that's so much a investment in myself as maybe the Lord's investment in me. I think, and so I don't want to take credit for that, but that would be predominantly, you know, there. Uh, I got, you know, <laughs> uh, very lucky, I would say, or, or you know, blessed is a great word, uh, you know, when my wife agreed to marry me. Uh, I'm a lucky man. You know, I can't say or claim that that was an investment in, in, in that kind of word. Uh, but, you know, the the fruits of her support of my work uh, is responsible uh, for anything I've done. And, and so, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of the the success is, is really due to her. And I think I think a lot of us could say that about our spouses and and our families uh, that, that serve our nation. And so we're only as good as they are, period. Great answer. And I totally agree. What advice would you give to your 23-year-old butter bar self? 23 years old. Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, I don't probably just breathe. It's all good. You know, it, it's it, it's all going to work out. You know, it's okay. Uh, enjoy. Take a step back uh, and just be in the moment you know uh, i think as a young guy and i think this is normal you know you're flying jets and uh, you know you kind of get you know the tiger by the tail and uh, you know it, it uh you're so forward thinking and that's good i think that's good uh but it is okay sometimes to just live in the moment too and, and enjoy uh around you because because time moves at an accelerating clip you know and you'll blink your eyes and You'd be sitting, you know, in the Trident room pushing on 40, <laughs> you know, after all this. And so, yeah, it goes quick. So just take it in. In 10 years from now, what have you changed about yourself? Change about myself? I, you know, I, I, I think it's not about perfection or, uh, or always being right, but I think fostering an, an attitude of humility, uh, 
uh, and service to your family uh, and your community and your nation. And, and I just, you know, I, I hope to continue to improve on that, you know, and as long as I'm making improvements, I, I think that's, that's a worthy goal for sure. What's the one thing that NPS students should take away from their time here? Appreciation. You know, we get caught up, we get caught up in deployments in our specialty in our job, uh, whatever that is. And we're hard chargers and we work hard and we, our families make lots of sacrifices and, and we can be critical at times. You know, we can be critical of the small things uh, at NPS, you know, for example. And, and I think, I think if we all just step back and I, and I, I do think most of us after you leave NPS, we'll look back at it fondly. And so I think I would say that a sense of appreciation, this school is such a gift. It's a gift. The people that put this place here in the location they did uh, and staffed it with, I don't know where they found some of the faculty that are here. <laughs> That's what we're going to try to figure out on this podcast, but yeah. Phenomenal. Okay. Phenomenal. And, and, and to be here with fellow airmen and soldiers and sailors and Marines and international families uh, is just a treat. And, and it is such a blessing to be able to, <laughs> I really am overwhelmed with appreciation, you know, to the American taxpayer, you know, that funded me to be here and paid me uh, and took care of my family while I pursued this work. Uh, I don't ever forget that. And, and I, I hope I don't ever forget that because they're the reason I'm here and, and they paid the bill. They're paying the bills and, and they, at least, you know, they should know that you know, we're trying hard. And and their money is being well spent, and I I hope this school stands and continues to deliver because it's it really is a gift to this nation. It's a gift to its students, um, and it is unbelievably good. You know, I just I I can't I can't say enough about you know what a neat school it is, uh, the opportunities that are here, the, the support you're given, uh, the latitude you're given, the time to exhale from the operational mindset and just study and focus and, you know, uh, take some time, not a lot, but some time with the family and enjoy the area that's just pristine, you know, and just, it's a neat experience. And I just, I hope that most students would just pause in, in their moments of frustration and just realize what a gift uh, they've been given by your fellow citizen. And it's, and it's a neat thing. So uh, yeah, appreciation. Yeah, excellent. I, I absolutely agree. Um, NPS is a national asset, and I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. Uh, last question. I've been wanting to ask you this for a, a long time. <laughs> Say cool. Somebody whip. get me another flat tire. <laughs> <laughs> Say cool whip. Cool whip. Cool whip. Cool whip. Say who? Who? Say what? What? <laughs> no. <laughs> you have you ever watched Family Guy? I uh, don't watch Family Guy. Okay. Stewie says mm -hmm. cool whip. And with certain words, I couldn't get it out of you just now, but with certain words, you say wh what, who, why, or whatever. <laughs> but you, you got me on that one. <laughs> awesome, Matt. Hey, it, it was great. Let's have another couple. And uh, thanks for being on the Trident Room. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. 
This episode was recorded on June 23, 2020. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu backslash Trident Room Podcast.